You're listening to Love, Maine Radio with Dr. Lisa Belisle, recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a physician trained in family and preventative medicine, acupuncture, and public health. She offers medical care and acupuncture at Brunswick Family Medicine. Read more about her integrative approach to wellness in Maine Magazine. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See the Love Maine Radio Facebook page or www.lovemainradio.com for details. Now here are a few highlights from this week's program. It is true that music is used in therapy with dementia patients because somehow those vestiges of the brain are left somewhat intact. And through music, we can somehow elicit responses from dementia patients that they might not otherwise be able to get out. And it was a very profound, very powerful, positive experience for all of us. Music is one of the last connections or last abilities that people have, probably right to the end of their life. And it is amazing to see the impact that music has in all forms on the person's ability not only to get connected with more of those remote memories, but get in touch with happiness and joy and that connection with people around them. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine. Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Berlin City Honda of Portland, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Harding Lee Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 199, Music and Memory, airing for the first time on Sunday, July 5th, 2015. Music can unlock memories that we may have otherwise lost. This past spring, the Choral Arts Society of Maine presented Time Remembered, Time Forgotten, the New England premiere of Alzheimer's Stories, to create awareness of the link between music and memory. Today, we speak with Choral Arts Society board member and vocal soloist Andrea Gration and Bill Kirkpatrick, program director for the Alzheimer's Association Maine chapter, about this interesting collaboration. Thank you for joining us. Today we have with us Andrea Gration. She is a frequent soloist in the greater Portland area and a longtime member of the Choral Arts Society in the St. Mary Scola Early Music Ensemble. Andrea serves on the board of directors of the Choral Arts Society. In the past, she has worked in senior care and in health care. Currently, she is working as a classical music vocal soloist. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. You've been doing an exciting, you've been doing a lot of exciting projects, but one exciting project that I know you did recently um, in May was having to do with Alzheimer's disease. That's right. We had a, a program that we presented on May 9th that was the New England premiere of a piece called Alzheimer's Stories by Robert Cohen. And the particular project was about two years in the making. We had a lot of moving parts. Um, very early on, we partnered with the Alzheimer's Association main chapter over in Scarborough. And they were so helpful in getting us connected with some of the important things that we might consider. Uh, we had a pre-concert forum that featured our conductor, Robert Russell, the composer, Robert Cohen, who came up from New Jersey, Kate Beaver, a music therapist, Bill Kirkpatrick, who's the program director at the main chapter, and we invited a poet, Judy Prescott, whose mother was cared for here in Maine, 
Um, it was a very serendipitous connection. I was um, in a coffee shop waiting to meet a friend, and I saw your magazine, actually. And I opened it up at the time, and the column that said what Mainers are reading featured Judy Prescott's book, Searching for CC: Reflections on Alzheimer's. It was Judy's way of processing her experience as her mother descended into the Alzheimer's disease. And I thought, well, I'll reach out to her and see if we could maybe use her poetry or some artwork, which is really beautiful. Family members contributed artwork to her book. And she said, absolutely anything I can do to help, which became, I wonder if she'd actually come. And she was so excited to plan to come, but at the last moment she got very sick. And her brother helped out by reading some of her poetry in our concert, and he sat on that forum panel as well. And so we had the pre-concert forum planned. We also did a slideshow tribute that audience members and chorus members could participate in. We invited people to send in photographs of loved ones or caregivers, friends, who are either dealing with the disease or have unfortunately passed away. And so we did an in memory of and in honor of slideshow. And then we had two halves of a concert. The first half was music of celebration and remembrance. And the second half was the New England premiere of Alzheimer's Stories. So tell me about Alzheimer's Stories. Why was this an important piece for him to compose? It was um, a commission from a chorus in Pennsylvania. One of the chorus members lost both parents to the disease, wanted to honor them somehow, and proposed a commission of some kind of piece that could do that. And Robert Cohen was engaged to do the, the piece. He writes a lot of musical theater, so he knew how to deliver a very powerful message in a careful, profound, yet powerful way. And he frequently works with Herschel Garfine, who is a librettist who had a very innovative idea. Um, how do we tell this story? How can we honor the people in a true and valid way? So he invited chorus members, community members, to contribute to a blog. Tell us your stories. And they did. And some of the stories actually wound up as part of the music. There were different characters. The first, um, the first movement is simply called the numbers, and the chorus sings very dry data about the unfortunate number of victims that we had in 2009 when the piece was written, and then projecting 2050, for example. And in the middle of the first movement, the two soloists, the baritone soloist and the mezzo soloist, become characters and the baritone soloist becomes Dr. Alzheimer. The mezzo is Augusta Dieter, who was a very unusual patient at the time, uh, back in 1901. She was 51 and committed to a mental institution where Alzheimer rounded. And he did not know what he was seeing with her. She was, like you might see with Alzheimer's, aggressive, unpredictable, couldn't remember things. So unusual for a 51-year-old, and what we're guessing now is it was early onset. Um, he worked with her for five years. When she passed away, he actually looked at her brain and found some of the hallmarks of the disease, which are the 
the pockets of emptiness in there, the tangled fibers and such. And so that comprised the first movement of Cohen's piece. And the second movement was called The Stories. Um, the chorus tells a story of visiting with mom or visiting with dad. And then unusual things happen, like mom can't remember how to drive. Or we might need to put dad in a nursing home. And again, the soloists say, please don't do that. Or I'm fine driving. Um, then the mezzo takes on the role of a woman in a nursing home, but she doesn't realize she's there. She thinks she's back on a boat to Panama. And the handrails, she used to run along with her sister and, and grab the handrails and swing on things. And the chorus comes in to remind her mom, those are handrails in a nursing home. They help you walk. But she doesn't want to hear that. And the baritone soloist tells the story of being in the Navy, and the chorus is, oh, here we go again. Another classic hallmark of the disease, the repetition of stories, repetition of words. Uh, the third movement is dedicated to the caregivers. And it, I believe, was the hardest one for Cohen to put together. How do we make this piece hopeful and positive? And he did. He, um, he and Garfine put together the words that um, love and music are the last things to go. And it is true that music is used in therapy with dementia patients because somehow those vestiges of the brain are left somewhat intact. And through music, we can somehow elicit responses from dementia patients that they might not otherwise be able to get out. And it was a very profound, very powerful, positive experience for all of us. Tell me what it felt like as you were yourself part of this. Tell me what you were experiencing. Well, I was very fortunate to sing the mezzo soloist role, and so I wanted to be accurate but not overdo the portrayal of the characters. Um, Augusta Dieter, for me, was confused, but not angry, just confused. She didn't know where she was. Alzheimer's said to her, what's your name? Augusta. What's your husband's name? Augusta. What about your children? I have children? But I wanted it to be subtle and confused, a little detached. In the, the second movement, telling the story of the little girl running along the boat to Panama, um, it was joyous because I pictured someone remembering that memory and having so much pleasure reliving that. Um, and in the last movement, the caregiver I wanted to make sure that it was positive, that it would honor the families and the caregivers and all that they did uh, to let them know that we understood some of their struggles. So it was, it was wonderful. And, and going to the rehearsals every week, um, there were stories in the chorus, too. Uh, a lot of people have dealt with this. so. There were some struggles sometimes. People couldn't sing. But every week, people got more invested, and the end result was so exciting, so moving. Everybody really had ownership of it and was really proud that we were doing something meaningful and helping out the Alzheimer's Association because it was a benefit in part to, to help them. How did the audience respond? They loved it. We got so much positive feedback. We had one woman in particular who spoke 
in the pre-concert forum talking about her own mother who could not verbalize with her Alzheimer's disease, yet she heard some African dialects here in Maine that reminded her of her work as a youth over in Africa. And that opened her up. So she spoke to us in the forum about how important it is not just with music, but to remember languages with people to try to reach them. And she approached me afterward and she said, my mother passed away a few months ago. I'm still processing it, but tonight I cried from the beginning to the end, but it was very healthy. It really helped me process all of this. So we helped some people. Why are you yourself so invested in choral arts in Maine? Um, I've always been involved with music um, since about the age of 10. Uh, we had a great music teacher in my elementary school who got us singing. We had a great orchestra. There was a string program as well. I know a lot of the schools now do band, but I'm 58, and so at the time it was orchestra. So I had those two outlets, and um, it gave me a chance to make friends, to pursue some things, to express myself. And when I married my husband, we went off into the Air Force, and wherever I went, wherever we were stationed, I'd find music. And I think it's so important for young people because it offers an outlet um, if they may be struggling to try to find themselves. It offers a safe place where they can discover and explore, um, find friends, forever friends, I hope. Um, but the Choral Art Society in Portland is an important part of my life. There are three ensembles, and I am fortunate to sing in all three. And early on, I was invited to sit on the board, and I try to participate in programming and whatever I can do to help get our message out. Um, I think it's important to try to keep the arts alive. Portland is a very vibrant place for the arts, and we're so lucky to have the Friday art walks and the courses, ballet, symphony, string quartets, jazz. There's everything here. It's wonderful. And I just think it's important to keep it in the forefront. Love Main Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaME.com for more information. Love, Maine Radio was brought to you by Bangor Savings Bank. For over 150 years, Bangor Savings has believed in the innate ability of the people of Maine to achieve their goals and dreams. Whether it's personal finance, business banking, or wealth management assistance you're looking for, at Bangor Savings Bank, you matter more. For more information, visit www.bangor.com. 
Is there something for you about the singing that um, keeps you linked to your essential self? Absolutely, yeah. Um, singing is different. I've played instruments as well, and it's great to make music with instruments, but there's something so personal about a singing voice. Um, and some of the research I've read indicates that people who sing have a great sense of community. There's a shared experience getting the message out. One of the things I love about singing is being able to tell the story. Whatever it is, whether it's early music or jazz or Broadway or opera, why did the composer write this? Why were the words chosen that are on that paper? What can I do to honor what the composer probably meant, but what can I do to put my own stamp on it? And I like being able to do that. Knowing how connected this makes you to yourself, it must have been very interesting to offer this to a group of people, Alzheimer's, caregivers, maybe even some patients in the audience who were themselves connecting through the words that were coming out and through the music on the stage. Right, right. The first half, as I said, was music of celebration and reflection. And what the music director was trying to do was perhaps honor the love that we've all felt. One of the, the um, points of a lot of the therapy is to try to recapture some of the memories from someone's youth, where some of those memories may be the most available to a patient. So he wanted to focus on love, to maybe recapture young love when people might have been married. Uh, I had the great fortune of working with a support group during my work in senior care, and I got to know some people who were struggling. Should I put my loved one in a nursing home, or I have put my loved one in a facility? Will that person remember me if I skip a day? Will that make a difference? A lot of guilt, a lot of love, but the love was always really paramount, and so I think it was important to honor some of that in the first half of our concert. One of the things that I've learned in some research on dementia and music therapy is that it is those younger songs, the things that help give us identity, national identity or social identity, family identity. Some of the things that we experienced as young people are the songs that really bring the strongest responses. Even if people are nonverbal, the songs can draw them out. They'll sing along, they remember the lyrics where they might not remember a family's name. So uh, it was important to keep all that in mind, no matter who was sitting in the audience that night, that we were trying to honor some of the things that might bring them pleasure, no matter where they were in their journey. How is this performance different from other performances that you have done um, in, with either with the Choral Arts Society or with other organizations? This one um, involved some outreach, which the Choral Arts Society hasn't really done a lot of. It was a partnership from the start with the Alzheimer's Association, so it was a very clear uh, goal that we wanted to help them. They, in turn, helped us get the word out about the concert and were totally invested in what we were doing from the start. But it was different. It felt different that we were um, 
not just performing music, but there was a very particular purpose in mind. We also had a, a lobby gallery of some therapy ideas for people. We had um, Kate Beaver, our music therapist, on the panel, who was available to talk to people. The Alzheimer's Association was there. We had photos of an early stage activity group from the main chapter in Scarborough, pictures of doing wonderful things, hiking and art therapy, um, snowshoeing, skiing. And how brave are these people living their lives knowing what's coming? So we, we had displays of that. We had a photographer displaying pictures of his dad. That was his way of processing his own feelings going into the nursing home to see his dad. We had a list of um, memory cafes, which are safe places where people can go and, and share their experiences. The social networking, I think, is very important for them. So if people want to investigate where some of those memory cafes are, I think it's available on the internet. What else did we have? We had Judy Prescott's family there with some of her poetry books. Oh, we had a display from the Harmonaires chorus group up in Brunswick. It is comprised of dementia patients and their caregivers, and they are wonderful. I, I got to hear them perform at a state education conference, and they are really good and fun to watch. They memorize their music. It's all right there, and it's, it's so fun. They get such joy out of singing. So we had a lot of things available for people. They could take information home with them. They could take the program home with them that had the information in there as well. It was a very different program from Coral Arts Society with the outreach and a lot of moving parts, but um, it gave us a model for what we may do in the future if we want to try to do some innovative programming. We've done collaborations with other or arts organizations, ballet, opera, organ, but this was the first time we ventured into more of a social outreach purpose. What do you have coming up for the second part of 2015? Uh, for myself personally, I have early music concerts. The Choral Arts Society will be singing with the Portland Symphony in October. And then we move on to our Christmas at the Cathedral weekend, the first weekend in December. We have a Messiah sing-along, which is very popular. Andrea, I'm not sure everybody knows what what early how early music is defined. So if you could tell us what that is and, and why are you why are you attracted to that? What what is it that this does for you in general? Absolutely. Um, I am not an expert by any means in early music, but I was invited to sing in an ensemble that does perform that particular genre. So I've been learning on the fly and learning a lot and having a great appreciation for what these musicians do. There are what are called Baroque instruments, different types of violins and bows, violas, um, early cellos, which are called viola da gamba, which are different. We have a wonderful lutenist who plays with us, plays lute and theorbo. And I love to listen to them play. It's a different style. It's a very dry um, style, not romantic necessarily. But what was appropriate in, say, the 1600s, early 1700s. We have even performed some pieces in one of my ensembles as early as the 800s. And it's fascinating to 
think what would be historically accurate, what would be correct in singing their different styles, for example, um, different ways to treat um, some of the the music that would perhaps harken back to that time. The languages, we sing in Italian, German, uh, we've done some Spanish, French. And some of the French is early French. It's not what you might hear today. So that's a learning process as well. I think what I like best about that is making that music available here in the Portland area. It's unusual. People don't get to hear it all the time. For example, this past weekend, we performed music by Monteverdi. He composed a wonderful mini-drama about love in a loving way, but also in a bit of a combative way. He wrote for the first time some of the darker sides of love, and it was fascinating to bring that to life. One of the focal pieces was the story of a warrior who fell in love with a woman, but she also dressed as a warrior, and he did not know that, and they battled each other, and she happened to succumb to a mortal wound, and he took her helmet off and realized it was the woman he loved. So there was a wide range of emotion in that. A lot of that type of music and expression was heard for the first time when Monteverdi wrote that. And we paired with the Portland Ballet Company, had two dancers tell the story through dance as it was being sung. And it added a wonderful element for the audience and for the performers as well. We got to see a dancer interpretation, singer interpretation, musician interpretation of early music. The audience loved it. I loved it. it. It made such a difference to hear that music brought to life here in Portland, but also with a dance element as well. It seems like there may be a future collaboration, um, maybe with the Alzheimer's Association, but maybe with other social groups. Mm -hmm. Um, But if not, people can certainly experience the joy of the Choral Arts Society work. How can people find out more about the Choral Arts Society? They can find us on the web at www.choralart.com. Org. They can also send an email to info at coralart.org or call our number at 828-0043. Anybody could investigate our performances or audition opportunities if they'd like to be part of the organization or contact us if they'd like to volunteer and find out more about us. Well, those of you who are listening, who are singers and have been singing in your shower for years but would like the opportunity to actually have a greater voice, maybe this would be me. John John McCain is pointing at me. <laughs> Great. Um, I encourage you to look into what's being done with the Choral Arts Society. This is certainly something I have learned a lot about during our conversation today, Andrea. We've been speaking with Andrea Gratian, who is on the board of directors with the Choral Arts Society and also a frequent soloist in the greater Portland area. Thank you so much for doing what you do. Thank you very much for having me. It was great to talk to you. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine, to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. When was the last time you took a break from what you were doing, from the work that was piled up on your desk, and just looked up? 
I know that during the course of my days, I often forget to take a moment or two to just breathe, look up at the sky, and dream. Terrible that I have to remind myself to breathe, but when I do, I feel energized because in those moments, I'm able to let go of the daily grind and think more about what I want to accomplish, how I want my business to grow. Sometimes those are the aha moments. If we all took a few moments out each day to stop what we're doing and dream a little about our business futures, not only would we feel a great sense of calm, but we may come to realize that these dreams can, in fact, come true. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com This segment of Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. As a physician who has patients suffering for, from dementia and also family members who are caring for these patients, and also as a woman who has a grandmother who suffered from dementia, I'm very interested in the topic of dementia and Alzheimer's. Today we have with us Bill Kirkpatrick, who is the program director for the main chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. Bill received his Master's of Social Work from Boston College in 1978 and a Certificate in Bioethics and Health Policy from the Neiswanger Institute of Bioethics at Loyola University in 2010. He has over 30 years' experience in health and mental health. He lives in Brunswick. Thanks so much for coming down and speaking with us today. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Now, tell me a little bit about your interest in this. If you have more than 30 years of experience in health and mental health, you probably could have chosen any number of places to focus your interests, but you've chosen this one. Why is that? Well, my wife and I moved up to Maine a little over three years ago, um, and uh, part of our preparation was finding work. I had recently uh, taken... uh, quote, early retirement package from my previous uh, work, was in, which was in a health system in, in Rhode Island. Um, and I, the one thing I did know is I did not want to work in an acute care setting. Um, and um, so much of what happens, I think, in life is timing is everything. And there were only two jobs available. One was in a hospital and the Alzheimer's Association. Originally, it was the manager of education. And the more I learned about the association and the more I learned about the mission, um, it just seemed like uh, a perfect fit for my interest and my passion. Um, and it turned out to be absolutely that. It's a wonderful organization. Um, and uh, ironically, again, it was uh, almost chosen for me, and I, I think it, uh, it, um, it turned out to be a, a great connection. So I'm very thankful of that. What has your experience been with the diagnosis of Alzheimer itself and the caregivers of people um, who have Alzheimer's? Well, by virtue of working in the social work field for 30 years, mostly in health settings, I've worked with any acute care setting, people um, with Alzheimer's or, or another form of dementia. Um, I served as the social worker on a memory in, uh, in a memory loss clinic at a hospital in Rhode Island for a period of time, and that's really where I started to get a little bit more of an immersion in what the impact was. 
beyond the diagnosis on families and people with the disease. Um, and uh, in all settings in the hospital, uh, I had some exposure or some connection in working with people. It really wasn't until I started to work for the association, though, that um, I was able to do a much more of a deeper um, uh, exposure or research into what, what it means to have the diagnosis and what it means to live with dementia and uh, the long-term impact on caregivers and families. There are other forms of dementia other than Alzheimer's. There's small vessel disease. There's other brain um, issues. Does your chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, do you deal with patients and caregivers who suffer from those diseases as well? Yes, we do. Uh, the formal title of the association is the Alzheimer's Association and Related Dementias. Um, and my understanding is that there are over 70 different types of dementias uh, that have been identified. Alzheimer's... Um, is the most common form, um, represents about 60 to 70 percent of all dementias. So in this country, over 5 million people are living with Alzheimer's disease. In Maine, it's about 26,000 people. And if you combine the other dementias, in Maine, it's another 10,000 people who are living with another form. Um, vascular dementia is the second most common type, and many folks end up being diagnosed or living with both. So which we refer to as a mixed dementia. Um, and then there are um, other forms such as frontotemporal dementia, a very complex disease, uh, Wernicke-Korsakoff's dementia, Lewy body dementia, Parkinson's dementia. So all of those folks uh, are served through the association. Uh, and uh, um, we're able to provide some education and resources for, for anyone who's living with any type of dementia. Going back to my own my own family situation, my grandmother was quite old when she passed away, and she didn't have dementia until the very, very end of her life. And that's, that's the way we often think of dementia. Mm -hmm. She was in a nursing home. My mother was around to care for her. My, my uncles were around. Our whole family was able to kind of collaborate in that way. But then I also have had patients recently who are relatively young, in their 70s, they have dementia, they need to move from their home to maybe the home of a child to be cared for in the longer term. Tell me what um, your experience has been with that and what services you are able to offer through your chapter. Well, we understand Alzheimer's disease in, this, in a series of stages. Um, there are seven uh, discrete stages, but we usually think about them in terms of early, middle, and late stage. And the typical picture I think that many people have is of the older person in a wheelchair in a nursing home, sort of disconnected and, and not able to provide care for themselves. Um, that's certainly true, but that's only one aspect. Um, we emphasize early detection. We emphasize um, that people need to pay attention to the signs that may um, mean that someone is having a um, uh, sort of early signs of dementia. Um, so one example of a program or, or a service that we provide is education around know the 10 signs early detection matters. Um, so our goal is to reach people earlier um, for several reasons. One is that uh, there is um, information and resources that they can take advantage of. People can begin to plan for their future and participate in that planning um, ahead, of, ahead of time. Uh, because this is a progressive disease that ends in death, 
there's a lot of preparation and planning, and a big part of what we do through the association and our helpline services is to help people anticipate what will happen as a result of progressing through the stages over the number of years. So that includes legal and financial planning, um, safety planning, um, paying for care at home or in a long-term care facility, um, providing care and support for care partners uh, and caregivers. Um, that's a huge um, issue, a huge impact on families. Um, the stress of caring for someone with dementia uh, is enormous. And so lots of our services and emphasis is on providing support for the caregivers. It's a matter of trying to tell those stories and raise concern and awareness. Um, early on in my professional career, I worked on an oncology unit 30 plus years ago. And in those days, similar to what's occurring now with Alzheimer's, there's a huge amount of stigma and fear that kept people away from getting a diagnosis, kept people away from getting treatment. And that's certainly changed over many years. We see very um, significant um, success stories in terms of treatment for many different types of cancers and HIV, for example. Alzheimer's still carries with it a huge um, burden of stigma and fear that does keep people away from treatment. So a big part of what we do is to try to raise that awareness and um, provide hope and access to, to services. So through the uh, events like the Coral Arts Society or other programs, that gives us that chance to sort of be out there and connect with people earlier and earlier. Um, so that's uh, hopefully um, where we're going to continue to go. The Coral Arts Society event was pretty special, something that hasn't been done here in Maine before. No, I understand it was the first production in Maine of that work. Um, and we were very fortunate to have uh, the creator of uh, the Alzheimer's Stories, Robert Cohen, uh, with us on May 9th um, for the event. Um, the, uh, prior to the event, there, were slide, there, was, there was a slideshow. Uh, there were some invitations sent out to families to send pictures in to be able to display of their loved ones who are either living with dementia or have died from um, Alzheimer's or another form of dementia. The panel included uh, Robert Russell, who is the Coral Director, Robert Cohen, um, Tom Prescott, who whose sister Ju Judy Prescott wrote a beautiful uh, work of poetry called Searching for Cece, uh, which is a, a, a poems and artwork in uh, honor of her mother, their mother, who died of Alzheimer's. She, unfortunately, had also, uh, had um, laryngitis that night, so Tom was there reading poetry, and that was in, in sort of incorporated in the musical work. Uh, and then the, there was the, uh, the the production that was really very, uh, very special, uh, very, uh, very powerful way to tell the story of Alzheimer's disease. The interesting thing about doing uh, work with the Choral Arts Society about music is that we know that music actually does do something with the brain that actually brings back memories in some ways. So you're doing something that is raising awareness, but you're also doing something that is helping um, the people who actually have dementia. Absolutely. One of the other panel members was Kate Beaver, who is a music therapist, and she was able to articulate uh, very clearly that power of music and that um, in many ways, uh, music is one of the last connections or last abilities that people um, have, right? 
probably right to the uh, right up to the end of their life. And it is amazing to see the impact that music has in all forms on the person's ability not only to sort of get connected with more of those remote memories, but get in touch with um, happiness and joy and uh, sort of that that connection with people around them. Um, so um, there are some very interesting, more and more programs out there that are using music uh, therapeutically to help stay connected with uh, with people in the later stages of the disease. So I'm not a music therapist, so I can't talk a whole lot about the nuts and bolts of that, but uh, it um, is something that we hear all the time. Uh, that and artwork, uh, any sort of, crea- sort of creative arts really is very therapeutic and helps helps you know provide that sort of positive connection with people through throughout the disease not just an end stage of course but throughout the disease we we've heard about right brain left brain and how one has to do with the more creative aspects of ourselves one is more organizational is there some sort of relationship between uh, dementia and um, right brain left brain and is that brought out by the music itself when it's played or heard um, well, my understanding is that uh, there is no one site in the brain that, that uh, where music resides, per se. I'm not an expert on this, but that it's more of a global phenomena, if you will, and that, uh, that music is, is also allows um, access to more remote memories or, or pleasure because of the context of music in people's lives. There's a, a very powerful documentary called Alive Inside, which is uh, tells the story about um, a project uh, started by a social worker down in a long-term care facility in on Long Island, I believe, in which he provided um, uh, iPods to, to um, uh, residents there with advanced stages of dementia. And music that families told the social worker this resident really loved in their whole life were loaded onto the iPod. And it's really remarkable to see the almost immediate connection when that iPod is turned on and there's this music being played. Um, So um, I I think uh, there are... um, The reason why it's accessible even late into the disease is because... uh, that's uh, uh, sort of connected to different parts of the brain in different ways. It's the creative part, certainly, but it's also connected to uh, emotion. Um, the, in, in emotion, and uh, whatever that emotion is, often lasts right to the end, probably to the end of the disease as well. That has real relevance for providing training for caregivers, both professional and uh, family caregivers, because while cognitive memory fades, emotional memory does not fade. So we do a lot of training around the hippocampus, which is where you know early memory is formed, and the amygdala, which is the emotional center of the brain, and, and that we can't rely on memory for caring for people or connecting, but we can rely on that, that emotional connection uh, and to pay attention to that throughout the disease. Music is one way to sort of tap into that emotional side of uh, life, emotional side of uh, communication. My observation is that there's not 
right now the therapies that we have, medical therapies, are not as useful as hopefully they one day will be. So we actually need to rely on therapies like music and art to help people and and the people who are caring for them. Exactly. Uh, We do have some uh, uh, drugs, some medications that can help symptomatically. But Alzheimer's disease is a fatal disorder, fatal disease. Um, It's now the sixth leading cause of death uh, in this country and in Maine, and it's uh, on the top ten list. It's uh, it's the only one that does not have a cure nor any disease-modifying treatments. So the drugs we do have do help some people for a period of time uh, with improving memory, maybe, um, improving um, or reversing some of the social isolation that occurs. Um, But more drugs are needed, and that's the connection to research, of course. Um, And while those medications are helpful for some people, it it is other forms of therapies that are really um, needed such as music or other kinds of creativity. Um, It's the way that caregivers also understand how to maintain that communication and understand behavior as communication. So as language fails, we need to rely on other forms of staying in, uh, in contact or communication with people. So there is a lot of uh, knowledge and um, aspects of that um, delivery of care that's something also that we provide. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines carefully prepared by experienced professionals coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine Seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit www.theroomsportland.com. One of the things I remember about my grandmother being um, sick was the loss that I felt, that my mother felt, that that this was a person who had been so vibrant. She was the oldest of um, in a largest in a large Irish family, South Boston, just Spitfire, one of the first women in her family to become educated, college education. She was a nurse. She was stationed out at Fort Williams, where she met my grandfather. Um, and so to lose that person and lose that woman, and then even to not be able to introduce that woman to my children, mm. th- and it was so it was so. Um, insidious you know you didn't really know that one day you would have nana and then the next day she wouldn't be there anymore you didn't even know when it was time to say goodbye 
And, I, and I'm wondering if music or some of these other therapies that you're describing can somehow be of comfort, somehow be soothing? I think they can. It's certainly a way for children or grandchildren or others to stay connected or, or have that, that connection and, and see the, the impact, the positive impact on the person with dementia. But that loss that you uh, described um, is something that uh, is pervasive, is insidious, and I think that it, um, it's a process that takes place throughout the progression of the disease. Um, so it's not something that happens sort of at a moment in time and then it's gone. It's sort of a continual process so that, that there is that theme of loss. And so any way that we are able to help um, uh, families, including uh, children and teens, from staying connected with their parents or their grandparents who are, are living with the disease um, is very powerful and very therapeutic f- for them as well. Um, so um, we would be available to help families, and including families with younger children, to find ways to s- maintain that communication or, or stay connected with the person living with dementia and, de- and deal with the loss and depression and concerns that they're feeling. That sounds like a very valuable resource. I'm also thinking about this early detection that you've described because I know that patients who come in to see me who have a family member with Alzheimer's, they will often say, I, I just can't find my keys or I can't find the name of a, a person that I have met once before on the street. And we're not talking about that kind of memory loss. We're not talking about you can't find your keys. I mean, most of us have those moments. It's if you don't remember that you had keys. You know, it's, it's much bigger things than that. So exactly. to be afraid to bring this up to your doctor, I, I think is... Um, well, just I would like people who are listening to know that we can maybe help with some of those fears. Exactly. Uh, one of our signature education programs is uh, part of our early detection alliance or initiative uh, across the country, and that's Know the Ten Signs, Early Detection Matters. And in that program, and also through our helpline as we talk to people who are calling who might have some worry about their memory or talking about those signs. We want to differentiate those kinds of things that happen to all of us as a result of normal aging and the signs uh, of a potential dementia that is not part of normal aging. So it's a great example, you know, misplacing an item um, or forgetting a name um, happens to all of us. We're all slower cognitively and physically as we grow older. Um, But it's really those those changes that occur that begin to interrupt daily life and interrupt the person's ability to uh, to live um, their life normally. So the early detection part of that is um, there are lots of reasons why memory might be impaired, it, not necessarily Alzheimer's disease. Um, there are lots of medical conditions that are life-threatening that, that can cause some of the symptoms that we see. So please go to your physician and check it out uh, and, um, and be able to get the help and, and find out whether, in fact, it is something that's momentary or normal aging or, a, or sort of a red flag of, of something, something else. We also advise family members to go with them. So particularly... Because if we're talking about a memory impairment, 
it's important that the practitioner, the physician or other practitioner, get the whole story, the whole history. And there, uh, you know, there may be gaps in that person's ability or knowledge or memory of being able to share with them what's been happening and how long it's been happening. Um, so folks usually start with their primary care physician or practitioner and then move on to other diagnostic um, you know, workups if necessary. So what are some of the 10 things for people to be paying attention to? And I'll just send people over to, um, to your website to, yeah. to learn all of them. But what are some of the yeah. signs? Um, well, uh, memory loss uh, is the, the sort of the signature sign of Alzheimer's disease. And that's because the part of the brain that is responsible for taking in newly learned information is first affected by the disease. Um, it's uh, changes in the ability to plan or organize um, some language problems, some word finding problems, and eventually some difficulty in, in writing, uh, visual spatial changes in relationships. Um, it's always important to check out our, our vision, but it's the part, what I'm <clears throat> referring to is the part of the brain that's responsible for taking in um, input and, and um, sort of interpreting it in terms of vision that begins to be um, uh, affected. Uh, balance and equilibrium, um, uh, difficulty with calculation, so balancing the checkbook, for, for instance, uh, may be impacted. Judgment and reasoning um, are impacted. Mood and personality are impacted. So there are a number of these that can be, again, red flags for another condition. There may be dementia, may not be, but we urge people to check it out and not be afraid to talk about it and go see their physician. And as you've pointed out, there are some things, some medical things that can cause memory or other issues. And in fact, some of them may be reversible. I mean, there is something called delirium. You know, exactly. People can come in and have a urinary tract infection if they're older or some other type of infection and actually be delirious. And we can actually fix that. Absolutely. And they aren't going to progress to dementia. So that sort of thing should always be checked out. Absolutely. Tell me how people can find out more about the main chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. We have a toll-free uh, number for immediate access, and that's 1-800-272-3900. And our website is alz.org slash main, and that'll get everyone to the uh, chapter. Um, but calling that 800 number 24 hours a day gets people immediate access to master's prepared clinicians who can provide information, referral resources, but also care consultation, which is just spending the time to talk about their respective situation and help them begin to plan. Uh, it's a free service. It's an unlimited service. Um, we don't bill anybody. We're voluntary healthcare organization. Um, and so uh, it's, it, it's here for people to, in Maine to get access to right now. Well, I've actually learned quite a bit today, so it's really wonderful that you were able to come in and speak with us. Um, I've been having a conversation with Bill Kirkpatrick, who is the program director for the main chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. Thank you so much for all the good work you're doing for people here in Maine. This is a tough, tough thing that you're working on, and I'm sure that what your organization is doing is, is very important. Thank you very much. Thanks for this opportunity to talk about it. You have been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 199, Music and Memory. Our guests have included Andrea Gration and Bill Kirkpatrick. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com.
Love Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful1 on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our music and memory show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love Maine Radio is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Berlin City Honda of Portland, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Hardingly Smith of The Rooms, and Bangor Savings Bank. Love, Maine Radio is recorded in the studio of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Susan Grisanti, Kevin Thomas, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our content producer is Kelly Clinton. Love, Maine Radio is available for download free on iTunes. See www.lovemainradio.com or the Love Main Radio Facebook page for details.